Hello, this is Blair. You may have noticed, but I have been laying low through the holiday season. There are a few reasons for this, but the primary one is that I started a temporary full-time gig and have had to take a step back in order to adjust to a new schedule. I really appreciate your patience, or if not patience, indifference, and look forward to bringing you more and more consistent content in the year ahead. While on break, I was approached by my longtime friend Adrienne about guesting on her show, That's Allowed. In her own words, Adrienne is a professional storytelling coach, brand voice expert, podcaster, and content creator who delights in using her PhD in drama to spin the mucky straw of life experience into narrative gold. As chief inspiration officer at That's Allowed, she helps people and brands find their authentic voice and connect with their ideal audience through engaging written and recorded content. Video game fans may recognize her as the voice of multiple characters from the Nancy Drew Her interactive series, Artemis from Super Monday Night Combat, or Nina and Bonnabelle from Crush Crush. West Africans may recognize her as the white girl in that super nougie soft clip. Others may know her as that accent lady from the YouTube video. Live aligned, she says, and live aloud. That's Allowed is a storytelling podcast. More specifically, after a debut season working out the kinks in her own memoirs, Adrienne sought to do the same for the other storytellers in her circle. She invited me on the show to lay out and break down any story I was having trouble telling. I ended up choosing a story that is intensely personal and high stakes, and one that I had not talked about at length to anyone new in quite some time. The discussion was very grounding insofar as structuring uh, the narrative that I want to put together. It was also cathartic and unexpectedly challenging. Adrienne is a delight to know and a delight to participate with in any creative venture. She is a funny and thoughtful, engaged and evocative host, and you should most definitely give That's Allowed a listen. That's That's Allowed, A-L-O-U-D. A quick content note, this episode digs into some grief stuff. I hope you all enjoy mine and Adrienne's journey. Hi, I'm Adrienne. I help people tell the stories they were told not to talk about. Maybe by their own inner critic. Maybe by the world. Either way, I'm here to serve as a kind of story midwife, birthing these beautiful naked narratives and helping them thrive. Telling our own stories and speaking our own truth should be the easiest thing in the world. But it's not. We all get blocked. We all feel censored, stymied, or silenced at times. We struggle to find the right entry point, to articulate the message we want to convey, and to identify the ideal audience to receive it. And that, my friends, is where I come in. I'm a professional brand voice consultant and story coach. I help entrepreneurs, solopreneurs, storytellers, and anyone else who is ready to start living out loud to deliver their authentic voice directly to those who most need to hear it. Are you ready to get authentic? Good, because that's allowed. Hey everyone, I am here with Blair Hopkins today, and I'm going to do something I rarely do. I'm going to read her entire bio because I love it. Blair Hopkins is a travel writer and photojournalist based out of her beleaguered trooper of a Nissan Versa. She hosts the podcast, Blair Slept There, an exploration of life, culture, and history relative to our shared spaces, and is the author of All in a Day's Sex Work a multimedia investigation into the daily lives of the intriguing, oft maligned, and dedicated professionals who occupy our fantasies and indulge our deepest erotic urges. Blair has contributed to a number of publications, including Here Magazine, 
Time Out, Food Fanatics, and Brooklyn Vegan. Currently, Blair is cobbling together a memoir, the grit of which we will be getting into here today. Does that about cover it, Blair? Great. (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic. So I've known Blair for a bit, and she's incredibly talented, and I'm really, really happy to have her here today because she's going to do something super fucking brave today. Right, Blair? Sure. (laughs) Like, yeah, sure. Thank you for having me. (laughs) So Blair, what are we going to be talking about today? So uh, you asked me about stories that I was stuck on. And um, the outside of the realm of my normal, uh, I have to procrastinate and I don't know how anything's going to formulate ever until the very last second. The only story that has just been plaguing me from a logistical and structural level has been this memoir. Yeah. so the memoir is about a period of time a few years ago where within about a six-month span, I and several of my friends all kind of peripherally in the same friend group or bar scene all lost our partners. Wow. <laughs> yeah, and uh, all in pretty similar ways. We were all just kind of uh, tangentially uh, connected through the same bar scene in the East Village. So the um, the memoir is going to be called Bar Widows of the East Village. And I, I just have always been of the opinion that when you come up with a great title for something, you should write something up to accompany it. 100%. <laughs> uh, because often the title is the hardest part. Yeah, so true. So my goal has been, I mean, I started trying to write about uh, the death of my partner pretty shortly afterwards, um, Mm -hmm. mostly because I was drinking a lot. Sure. I write a lot when I'm drinking. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I found that everything that came out of me was just like too sad to be good. Right. It was too close. Right. Yeah. Um, And now with some time and perspective and some Zoloft and (laughs) (laughs) et cetera, et cetera, and a book under my belt now so I know I can do this. Yes. um, My goal has become to get it ready to start shopping by the five-year anniversary, which is this coming August. Okay. So where does this story begin for you? Hmm. Well, I've kind of settled on the story itself beginning about a year and a half afterwards. I had moved out of New York Mm -hmm. and had moved to New Orleans kind of hoping to get my head together and have a little change of pace. And actually I moved down there to kind of dry out, uh, which no one believes, but is true. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, basically I moved down there because I could be poor enough in Louisiana to get Medicaid and I couldn't do that in New York and also stay afloat. Got it. Um, I made too much money there to get any kind of assistance, but too little to afford any insurance. So I moved in with a friend in Louisiana, uh, and just got really super fucking broke and got on Medicaid. Yep. Okay. Uh huh. And it was the day. <laughs> yeah. Right. There we go. It's a larger narrative here uh, about America, but yep. Yep. It was the day that I was set to pick up my prescription for uh, the first antidepressant that I tried, which was Prozac. Um, and I couldn't leave the house. I had probably about a seven hour long panic attack that, um, my panic attacks have been hospitalizing me 
leading up to that point, they'd gotten so bad. Um, I was in a really, really, really dark place. And um, that particular day, I just couldn't leave the house. I was pacing the length of our shotgun back and forth, like clutching my like EpiPen and, you know, just, uh, you know, just losing my fucking mind. And I remember saying to my friend, Sarah, who um, was one of the people that I would call when these things would hit me, this is crazy. This is how crazy people behave. This is not correct. I can't fucking live like this. Yeah. Um, and so to me, that moment in retrospect uh, became kind of that Dantean, uh, you know, moment after he tries to run across the field to, to start climbing the peak and is yeah. driven back into the woods by the dark beasts. And, and the shade of Virgil appears to him and is like, let's, we're going to talk you through this. We have to go the long way, but I'm here. You know? Yeah. So that's where I've kind of decided to begin the story. Um, I think the story actually begins, you know, obviously on the day that Shane died. That was my partner. Mm-hmm. Um, which, I imagine there'll be a lot of flashbacks here. This is, this is sort of entry point, but then we're going to move backward from there to see you know, right. And, and that's kind of one of the, the structural challenge, right? Because I've yes. been told like, you should just cobble together as many little vignettes or anecdotes as you can, as they come to you and you can make it fit later. And, uh, it just doesn't seem to be working. And part of that, you know, maybe my own procrastination, which is a, uh, uh enduring personality trait, but <laughs> well, and I can tell you, you know, as, as someone who has written uh, very dark, difficult memoirs, um, it's, it's much more emotionally draining than you expect it to be. Even when you have that distance on it, even when it's been, you know, for me decades, uh, it's still just writing about it brings it up and you have to kind of relive it every time you write about that stuff. And so be, be really nice to yourself. Well, when you feel all this pressure to you, you feel a tremendous amount of pressure to do it justice. Also, of course, of course, yeah. And I can see how you know the 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 flashback structure does make it a little more just complicated and difficult. So yeah. I would really recommend that you keep the emotional through line and worry less about timing and letting you know. I think people will figure out. You know, you can have a, a a pretty clear tell of like, okay, we're in the past, now we're in the present, even if you don't have exact dates for things. Mm-hmm. Um, that was one something that I get caught up on sometimes is like having to feel like I had to explain, you know, oh, when did this happen chronologically? It doesn't really matter to people as much as the emotional through line. Right, right. And I mean, you know, another obstacle that I have is that I intake a lot of really good media. Right. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. everything that I write is trite garbage. And when I come, I'm comparing it to like, you know, uh, Genevieve Jorgensen's The Disappearance or something. And I'm like, this isn't, that's not what you're writing. You're writing your story. This is not. So I'm like, well, the flashback format is fucking trite or the Dantean references are fucking trite or starting it off at the very beginning. You know, if I were to, I tried starting it off, uh, you know, at the hospital and you know, that was trite and garbage and it's all, it's all just garbage. <laughs> and I love like, you know, my, my, um, mentor who died before he could know that he was my mentor is, is the late, great David Rakoff, who once, uh, mm-hmm. said that, uh, writing 
is like reverse engineering a four star meal out of a pile of rotten garbage. <laughs> I love that. So that's kind of where I come from emotionally when I look at my, look at my writing. Yeah, I mean, of course, comparison is the death of all artists, right? We cannot compare ourselves to other artists or we will just think we're garbage. You have to just find that authentic voice and just tell your fucking story. That's all you can do. And, you know, I would say worry less about the structure of it right now. Try to just get as much as you can out. And then, you know, we can worry later about <laughs> how to make it into a really cool, easily readable <laughs> story for other people. I know. Yeah. And I keep thinking, I'm like, you know what? I, and I have these like really amazing um, techniques that I use to, you know, trick myself into thinking I'm getting organized and really what I'm doing is putting shit off. So I'm like, well, what I need to do then is I need to reread uh, the Comedia and I need to graph out all of the locations and timelines and characters. And then I need to take my own experiences and I need to see how they fit into those paradigms. And that's where I'll start. I'm like, you know, what you're doing is you're fucking procrastinating. You're not, this is not, you're imposing structure. It's like writing out a to-do list as, as an item on your to-do list. Right. And you're also being clever rather than being emotionally <laughs> authentic. Yes. Which yeah. I know I'm super guilty of too. I love, yeah. you know, I fall in love with my clever little, you know, ways of doing things and I get away from, well, what's the actual meat of this story? Right. <laughs> what did we come here to do? So yeah, I think you're going to be fine. You just need to stop collecting underpants. And you need to... <laughs> but there's seven for $35. <laughs> who can turn that down? Well, for those who don't know the reference here, that's from, uh, I believe, South Park. And uh, the, the underpants gnomes, they have you know oh a, a three-part structure, which is step one, collect underpants. Step two is blank. And then step three, profit. So yes. I, I have a bad habit and I think we all have a bad habit of collecting underpants endlessly and never getting to whatever step two is supposed to be. So, you know, you're, you're there, you have everything you need. You have your story. That's all you really need. So we just need to get it out of you. Right. And so then, you know, the next question of course is what's been blocking you. We've talked a little bit about it, but I think, you know, the, the main thing that's really blocking you here is just wow, what a hard story to tell. What a hard story to tell. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of defense mechanisms, right? In place. Of course there are. Maybe the, the, the very things that help you cope with your traumas can be the things that, uh, you know, in your day-to-day life can be the things that stop you from like making any real therapeutic progress. Yeah. Yeah. So who do you think needs to hear this story? One of the really fascinating and amazing things that has happened over the last four and a half years is that um, because I write really publicly and uh, about my experiences with grief, people have started referring young widows to me. Wow. um, Which is really, really great. Uh, I started calling this grouping in the East Village the Widows Club. Yeah. And so we would have regular like kind of meetings. Basically, we would just meet up at the bar and get drunk and hang out. And sometimes the emotional stuff would come up, but it it just became so 
nice to be in the presence of other people, not all young, actually, Phillips, Phillips quite a bit older, but mm-hmm. um, to be in the presence of people who've had a similar and strange experience. And yeah. the specifics of, you know, everyone, all the deceased involved in this story, there were substances involved. Mm-hmm. So that is kind of a further stigmatizing or alienating thing. There's one very good friend of mine who said, she's like, I don't even know how to define my husband's death. Like, was it a suicide? Was it an overdose? Was it, right. a, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. And so just, just being able to be, and, you know, also just like, holy shit, dating when you were widowed in your Mm -hmm. (laughs) twenties is a whole other jam. So, you know, I, I guess I feel that the goal of expression for me has always been, or the catharsis of it has always been to be, um, relatable. I mean, I was raised around a 12 step culture, so that's pretty deeply ingrained in my storytelling. That makes a lot of sense. How do you think it it informed your writing? Spending a lot of time in the rooms as a kid, Mm -hmm. I definitely learned what was boring. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I like fucking, oh God, just... Keep your audience in mind. Don't just go on and on about your pain. Yeah, mind-numbing, redundant, you know, soliloquies about about your, you know, your story, your life. And then when I was two years old and this and that, oh my God. Right, oh my God. So Endless confession. Yeah, endless confession. So two principles that are huge in 12-step programs that um, I have carried really conscientiously into my own storytelling are... A, we share in a general way. So that is, you know, not to say that you don't want to get specific about things, but that you're Mm -hmm. trying to keep kind of a higher level consciousness uh, present in your storytelling so people can relate to it. Right. Keep your story Um, relatable. Yeah. Right. And then the other is the structure of uh, what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. Yeah. So what was it like? Uh, it was incredibly strange. It was incredibly strange. The, the day that Shane died, we woke up, he had gone out the night before, or we had gone out the night before and we'd gone to a show. And, um, I woke up before him and I went out to move the car for alternate side for street cleaning Mm because we lived in lower Manhattan. And, uh, I knew that he was going to be tremendously hungover and just awful. So I took the opportunity to, instead of looking for parking, and I had stayed sober the night before. I had just been babysitting him, basically. Yeah. Um, and I took the opportunity to move the car and take a nap in the car, double parked, instead of trying to find parking. Mm-hmm. Um, and after that I went and I got us coffee and I got him up and normally I would have given him a blowjob, but we were running late. So we got out and, and by the way, thank God I didn't give him a blowjob because it probably would have killed him yeah. knowing what I know now. Uh, right. should be like, and then you wow, have that on your conscience. More trauma. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh my God. Can you imagine? I'm almost sad about that. Yeah. Yeah. I get it. I get it. Right. So we get up, we just go through our like daily routine shit and, uh, we had, he had to work that night. He was a bartender and 
so the plan was we were going to take him, he was going to go work out, and then we were going to make a quick stop at a uh, wedding reception for a friend. So we needed to go get a card, and that was the whole thing. He died owing me $12 for parking. <laughs> and then he'd go to work, and, and life would move on. So I dropped him off at the gym, and then mm-hmm. I walked up Avenue A to Two Boots to get a slice of pizza. And I was just going to enjoy my like hour of quiet because. As much as I, we were, we were pretty obsessive and codependent in our relationship and we just really enjoyed each other, man. He was fucking hilarious and, mm-hmm. and we just really meshed well. But man, when I could get an hour without him needing something, because he's very emotionally demanding, <laughs> yeah. um, I really enjoyed that. So I was like, I got an hour to myself that he's going to be at the gym and I'm going to have a slice of pizza and it's going to be awesome and I'm going to return some emails and he's not going to need me to get him anything. Um, and just as they were putting my pizza in the oven, he started texting me saying that he wasn't feeling well and that he thought maybe he was having, um, like a panic attack and could I come get him? Um, Now, had you been having panic attacks back then? Did you know what that felt like? I, mm, no, not really. Okay. I mean, I hadn't, I, you know, I had a little bit of history with that in my teens, but I, he and I had talked extensively about it and. Was that a normal thing for him or was this unusual? Yeah, he had pretty severe PTSD okay. that was um, exacerbated it. by his... It was both medicated and exacerbated by his drinking. As most things are. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah, and he also... I mean, it was August and he had a tendency to get like um, to get heat sick really easily. Okay, so, yeah. So I figured, all right, he's either feeling panicky or he's, uh, or he's a little overheated and dehydrated. I'll just go get the car. And so I just said like, okay, I'll be there in a few minutes. And he kept texting me and he sounded really frantic and he called and he was like, are you on your way on your way? And I'm like, yes, Shane, I'm on my way. Like I'm I'm walking to the car. I'm just getting my pizza. And so I pulled up around the block and parked in front of the gym and I texted, Hey, I'm here. And I waited maybe 30 seconds and then I called and I got no answer. And the last text that he had sent to me was like, hurry, please hurry. And I just got this, I got this fucking feeling, you know, just like, man, something is not, something's not good. Something's not right. And right as I was thinking I should pay for parking and go inside, I saw two police officers run into the building and I knew. Yeah. So I went inside and I saw him on the ground and there was like a woman standing off to the right sobbing and I think she was the one who had called 911 and they're trying to give him CPR and I'm like I immediately completely dissociated yeah I said two times oh my god oh my god and then I realized that that sounded it was that was when I realized I was outside of my body because I could hear what I was saying and I could put it in the framework of like you're going to get hysterical if you don't ask somebody a question about what's going on right so I turned to the crying woman and I asked her what happened and then I established who I was and got his wallet and his phone and they and then I stepped away from it I mean I took in the scene I looked at him I looked at what was happening I thought maybe he'd fallen down the stairs Mm -hmm. because it was a concrete floor And then I went outside and tried to remember his brother's name to call his brother from his phone. 
And so they rolled him out into the ambulance. The cops gathered me up and I remember specifically saying to the police officers, I was like, am I going to get a parking ticket? Like, can I leave this here? Oh my gosh. The things like, we focus on, right? Yeah, like, like moments I'm, of trauma. I'm the fucking pit crew always. Um, yep. And they were like, I was like, I only paid for an hour of parking. This is going to take more than an hour. They're like, if you get a ticket, you can deal with that later. Just get in the car. Just right. get in the back of our car. And the whole way up to the hospital, I was cracking jokes with them about like, being in the back of a police car you know like just trying yeah, yeah. it's it was so fucking weird but I also was not inside of my own body for any of it yeah and uh when we got to the hospital I stood maybe about 10 feet away while they were working on him and it was that same situation like I'm, I'm not even in here yeah so that's what it was like it was really surreal and I mm-hmm. was even in the moment both kind of uh, uh, impressed with myself for my crisis management acumen, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but also had this feeling of like, this is going to hit me really hard. What really it hard. Like, what's happening yeah. right now is very bad. Absolutely. Yeah. And when did it hit you? It took, well, <sighs> um, that night after, hmm, well, there's two answers to that. In the immediate, what happened was I called everybody. We went through the entire process of, um, you know, talking to the social worker and I got his family there and we did all that and um, and signed up, you know, gave our numbers for the organ donation place to call. And there's all these logistical things that have to happen. Right. Um, and there's actually a lot of really pretty funny stories that come out of that first few hours. But um Afterwards, I went to the bar that he worked at, which was mm, just down the street. He died at Beth Israel, which was on 14th Street in mm-hmm. Manhattan, and the bar that he worked at was on St. Mark's. And so I went down there and just kind of sat there shell-shocked with everyone around me for a while and got just absolutely shit-housed and um, right. lost it uh, somewhere around 4 a.m. Mm-hmm. But I don't know that I would qualify that as it hitting me, mm-hmm. right? Because I wasn't, I wasn't really there for yeah. that. It just, yeah. um, it took about a year and a half for the panic attacks to start, for the PTSD symptoms to yeah. kick in. Yeah. Um, I guess that a, I'm, I'm just realizing there is a, an interesting difference between when it hits you and when you can confront it. Right. Well, there's a, a an interesting like functional thing that I learned, which is that I had always thought that denial was the kind of hysterical, like, no, they're not dead or I don't believe it or I've kept their room the same or whatever kind right. of breaks with reality um, that happen. And, and what I found was that for me, what denial was, was I could not accept that something had happened to me. Yeah. Right. I mean, I got off easy. He's dead. Something mm-hmm. happened to him. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't until uh, it got to the point that I was unable to function, that it was like, no, something has happened to you. And that took quite a while because yeah. I, you know, I really 
know how to throw up the walls. Yep. Yep. Mm -hmm. Good, solid wall builder. Right. (laughs) So that brings me to my next question, which is how did it change you? Well, I'd like to think it made me funnier, but... (laughs) 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 But I don't necessarily... A lot of material. Yeah. Oh, my God. There's, there are some of the stories that I want to tell in this memoir that I think are important, but there are things like the first time I tried to masturbate after mm-hmm. he died or just, mm-hmm. you know, the ways in which your friends try to make you feel better, a lot of which are, you oh. know, deeply inappropriate and terrible, oh and, but yeah. so well-guided. And <clears throat> especially when you're talking about a lot of young people or even middle-aged pe- people who just don't have a lot of, you know, in bar scene people, maybe people who... Yeah. Struggle yeah. with relationships anyway, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and coping skills anyway. So sure. there's a lot of that. Uh, how did it change me? It made me ultimately a lot more in tune with myself, with my body, mm-hmm. because there was so much anxiety and fear around. Uh, that I would also just suddenly one day have my heart stop for no fucking reason. Right. Granted, I don't put down a handle of Jim Beam every day, but still and all. And once I was able to identify that, which only happened by virtue of the amount of support that I had, Mm -hmm. um, I was able to do things like go do a cardiac stress test and, you know, just all this stuff to kind of regain a sense of control um, and, and knowledge. Yeah that would um, kind of sate that terror. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It also put me very deeply in touch with my own nihilism, which was another enduring character trait of mine. But in what I like to think is a positive way um, now, right? It takes a lot or it takes very specific things to make me upset. Mm-hmm. because um you know we're all gonna die like <laughs> like who, yeah. who gives a shit <laughs> um there was a time when it when you know I spent a lot of time like oscillating wildly between being extremely needy and extremely attached to people and then alternately being very very cold and detached mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um and it, it took some time to reconcile those things. Yeah. But it gave me a lot more perspective on the people I know who had really severe traumas and losses earlier in their life and their, mm-hmm. their behaviors too. So I, right. I honestly think the experience made me a more empathetic person. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I saw a similar thing happen when my mom lost her second husband. She also lost her third, by the way. Jeez. I know, poor mom. Uh, and she, you know, she, it, I think it's, it's much harder to judge people when you realize everybody's going through some shit and you may have no idea how deep that shit goes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and just having that sort of experience that really turns your whole world upside down just makes you realize everybody you meet, you just, you know, you gotta be kind because you don't know what they're dealing with. Yeah, and you know, you also don't know what resources a person has to cope with going through the same things that we are all going through, right? Right, or lack thereof. Um, 
Right, exactly. Um, There is a writer, her name is Sarah Marshall, and I just absolutely love her, and I quote this tweet all the time. Um, But she said not too long ago, I absolutely believe everyone is doing their best with the resources that they have, and whether this is empirically true or not, which we could debate for the rest of our lives, this position allows me to live in compassion instead of anger and frustration. Yeah, so Um, true. It's, it's really just about empathy. You don't have to co-sign somebody's bullshit behavior. You don't have to continue to even have them in your life. But it does bring a lot of relief uh, to me personally to have the perspective or the ability to imagine why people behave the way that they behave. And a lot of that is drawn... I mean, that was something that I had before, I like to think, but it certainly is drawn from analyzing my own behaviors and Mm -hmm. reactions and whatever to this particular event. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I have another question for you. Mm -hmm. What do you want people to walk away from this story with? A copy of this book so that I can make a fucking living. (laughs) I'm kidding. kidding. Um, You know, one of the I think I, I mentioned Genevieve Jurgensen earlier and her incredible memoir, The Disappearance. One of the things that was most striking about that was the ways in which she managed to keep her daughters alive, mm-hmm. like to humanize them. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is, Shane has kind of a complicated memory because he was a really popular East Village bartender, kind of a party guy, and he was a local musician. And so there was definitely like this good time guy persona that was really pervasive. Um, and I think a lot of people who are close to him uh, have a complicated relationship with that persona and with the people that felt close to him because of it. Sure. Um, and it but alternately, you know, people who are close, who were close to him have a complicated relationship with talking about the real shit too. Yeah. Uh, because you're protective of your loved ones. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, by and large, his brothers and I, he does his, their parents have been gone for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and Shane was the oldest of five boys. So he had become kind of the, um, the default Patriarch. parent. Yeah. The yeah. patriarch. Mm-hmm. Um, by and large, we have had almost no conflict. Like it's been smooth sailing, dealing with all of the arrangements, dealing with all of the after and the fallout. And we've mostly remained really close, but the only time that we've had any conflict was, um, was when one of them kind of was, uh, aggrieved at something that I said in a Facebook post that was a little too real, I think. So I referred to his death as something that he did. Mm. So, and, and, uh, his, one of his brothers was like, was pretty upset by that. Mm-hmm. And so we had to have a talk about it. Yeah. You know, and I changed the wording of the post a little bit to make it a less maybe, um, pejorative yeah um which is a concession that I was willing to make because I love that person um I love his brother I love Shane you know I I definitely 
want to be respectful, but also um, I'm entitled to my own anger. Sure. Um, Yeah. um, I would like to, I would like to have the goal of this be to present a full picture of who this person that I really love was. Mm -hmm. Um, And I would like to present as full a picture as I can of, um, I would like to push forward the idea that grief does not look like anything that you think it will. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's some kind of stigmas that I would like to take some swings at. Mm-hmm. Um, Such as? Oh boy. Uh, well, I mean, anytime a widow has sex, she's fighting the patriarchy. So that's, mm-hmm. 100%. <laughs> that's important. Yeah. Um, uh, substance abuse, mm-hmm. substance misuse. There's a lot of stigma there. Um, there's a lot of mental health stuff. Yeah. There, um, is, there is a lot of just grief, grief and coping narratives that are pervasive in our culture that I think need to be continuously challenged. Like as though not, there's a right way to do it. We're not very good at grief in no. this culture. No, we, we're really, we're denial focused. Yeah. We don't have a lot of training around it. We really don't know what to do with it. Um, like you said, there's a, a really strong push to like, yeah, okay, be sad for a little bit, but then drop that, get back to life, get back on the horse. Positive thinking. Positive thinking. <laughs> uh, yeah. And I think there's also, you know, there's a huge stigma, of course, around uh, suicide. Mm-hmm. And the the whole question of does someone commit suicide or do they die by suicide? Right. It's Some a big debate the, right now. Yeah, I've heard actually like the new term is completed suicide, which I really like. Mm-hmm. Um, but mm-hmm. that I think is an intentionality too. I mean, right. you know, the the point that his brother had made to me on the wording of that specific post was. Uh, I don't, he's, he said something to the effect of, I don't know what was going through his head in those last moments, but I, I highly doubt it was some, you know, suicidal satisfaction. And it was like, well, we can't know. And I agree yeah. with you. And, you know, the, somebody who very conscientiously drinks themselves to death, whether they want to die right now mm-hmm. or not. Mm-hmm. I mean, but then of course you get into how much of a choice people have when they're in active addiction. Right. Um, They're just numbing their pain. And sometimes numbing that pain means taking it all away. Right. And I don't think anyone ever, you know, sets out like, you know what I'd really like to do? (laughs) (laughs) That's what I want to do today. Yeah. I just want to go the slow and uncomfortable and expensive way. (laughs) Yeah. I don't think anyone sets out to do that. I think there's just so much pain. Yeah, and also just so much needing to get through the day and you definitely yeah. get into a rhythm. Mm-hmm. Additionally, if he had better fucking health care, he mm-hmm. would have probably uh, caught that heart condition a little earlier. You so, think? Yeah. Yeah. Might have been. Uh, he might have made different choices because right. he was a very, very smart person. So. Yeah, he sounds like it. Is there anything else that the audience needs to know about this story or about you? When I think about my desire to tell this story, one of the things that keeps coming up for me is making it clear that you were not born okay, 
you're not going to be okay. Like mm-hmm. you're never going to be okay. And it's fine. <laughs> and that's okay. <laughs> We're all just in this together and it's going to like suck a lot, a lot of the time. Yeah. Um, and really the best that any of us can hope for uh, as far as finding meaning is to try and alleviate each other's suffering. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really important to me to um, talk about the things that are, to, like to talk about the things that are funny, to rehash the good memories, to juxtapose them uh to our less positive memories in a way that gives us perspective like just uh, building understanding uh between people is the best way to alleviate each other's suffering and that is the only meaning of life yeah I like that that's why I'm really glad that you have these other widows that you are sharing with and that are a part of your story because I think that is the kind of crux of your story is finding a way to deal with this right and it's funny I have Philip um, Philip Giambri who is an amazing writer as well and and somebody I consider to be basically my mentor (laughs) but if you tell him that I will deny it Um, (laughs) uh, he and I used to do these shows where we would pick a theme and they were at uh, Cornelius was it um, Cornelia Street Cafe and in the West Village and uh, we'd pick a theme and he would take submissions uh, on that theme and then we would host these like two three uh, part nights of, of readings and they were so cool and we did like love I think one of them was like on love and one of them was on um, feeling like a loser and we just got the real <laughs> coolest shit and so I came to him maybe his wife died uh two weeks before Shane did. Um, Oh my gosh. Yeah. Wow. And, um, I was like, we should do one on grief. It was maybe six months later. And he was like, Mm -hmm. I don't know. I don't know. You know? And I was like, come on, you know, you got to fucking, I'm like, you know, I'm like this young whipper. He's in his seventies. I'm this like whippersnapper. That's like, come on, old man, let's meet the challenge. We got to, we can do it. And he was like, I, no <laughs> you know just was like no I'm not ready I'm not, not ready, ready. For this. and I remember saying to him on another time when I brought it up like well you're gonna have to face this eventually and he looked at me and he goes why <laughs> I thought you know what you're right you're 75 years old you yeah. actually have to fucking face this if you don't want to you yeah you can just like relax <laughs> <laughs> travel in your retirement have some drinks like you can reasonably avoid this trauma of how your 40-year marriage ended um for the next five or so until you croak like right and who the like maybe I should just let this go and if you're ready to talk about it we'll talk about it if you ever are um so even that has been really informative I mean you know, the, just one of the great things about being around a lot of people or having cultivated a group of people who have similar experiences to me mm-hmm. is that everyone's coping. There are similarities and differences in the ways that people cope. And uh, that is really interesting and helpful to see. 
Yeah, that does sound really interesting to me. And I'd be very interested to hear the different ways that you see people coping, things that work, things that don't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and just, you know, I think because the, the question of who needs to hear this, it's really anyone who's grieving, anyone who's, you know, who, who needs a little bit of help on figuring out how the fuck do I do this grief thing? And I think you have a real opportunity to show in a fun kind of humorous way, different people's way of dealing with the same sort of grief. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, we'll see. I just, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I think you're right in that I just need to be actively working on it and and making it fit later, but. Yeah. Just write what comes and that will help you shape it. Right. Yeah. There's a great uh, exercise that my old playwriting teacher, Naomi Izuka, used to have us do, which is sort of a free writing exercise where you sit down and as soon as you get stuck, you write, what I really mean to say is, and then just see what comes. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And you <laughs> just keep writing and it, it's amazing what will come up when you do that and write oh, for, God. you know, three pages. We try to do three pages a day uh-huh. and just get it, get it out there and it won't be good. You know, that writing is like throwaway writing, but it will get you to the the kernel of what you really mean to say. It will get you to those gems of like, ah, this is what I actually want to talk about today. I feel like I've done free association writing and I give up after like five or six sentences because I'm like, well, this isn't going anywhere. <laughs> right. And it's, I, it's not. It's just oh. getting you to something that will go somewhere. Right. Patience. Patience. Patience, my pretty. Patience. <laughs> <laughs> I think you got this. I think you got this. I do. I I'll, think take you got your, this. I'll take your word for it. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, you have everything you need already. You just need to do it. Yeah. yeah. I know. I've enjoyed the, the accountability of having, um, you know, like I know that I can send you something and be like, mm-hmm. can you just give this a once over for me? And because you're <laughs> so organized and prompt. <laughs> it will actually you, come back. You. It will not take it will not take five weeks and and uh, two follow up emails to get answers out of you. <laughs> yep, that's what I'm here for. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. I really appreciate uh-huh. it. Of course. Thank you. I can I look forward to getting pages on this. You will. It will. Uh, you will. I still have the goal in mind. So, and I also feel kind of like the more people I tell that I'm doing it, or as mm-hmm. I slowly start to give it a little bit of promo, that serves as accountability too. So. Yeah, and I think you know, you just hit the nail on the head there. That one of the things we can do for each other is just keep each other accountable. Mm-hmm. And when somebody says, you know, hey, I'm working on this thing, just ask them every once in a while, how's it going, and you know, offer to offer to trade pages or just take a look at stuff and it really makes a big difference to artists just to have that extra pair of eyes. Right. Yeah. All right, darling. All righty. All right. Well, thank you again. I look forward to hearing uh, more from you. Well, you too. (laughs) All right. Bye.